Welcome to the Microsoft 365 Developer Podcast with your hosts, Jeremy Thake and Paul Schaeflein. Each week, you'll catch us speaking to expert developers about new tech, lessons learned, and opinions in this space. Hey, we're back together. How you doing, buddy? Oh my gosh, how was your European trip? It was about three days too long, but it was great. <laughs> you know how you get that feeling? It's like, oh, I wish I was home. <laughs> No, but it was great. But so for all these Americans who are on the call, I have to explain to you when you're driving in England, there's A routes and there's B routes. The B routes are intended for bicycles, but they invite cars to drive in both directions on these roads. So be prepared. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my goodness. <laughs> were you on the, Were you on a car in a car or were you on a bike? Yes. No, I rent. <laughs> We rented a car which had the steering wheel on the wrong side of the car. <laughs> Not the wrong side, the opposite side of the car. I shouldn't, I shouldn't say it's wrong. It was just the opposite. So, yeah. yeah. But, yeah, so it was a great trip. It was a great trip. Um, yeah, we, we spent, we spent uh, 10 days driving around the southern half of England, seeing the sights and doing not much else. It was great. So, it was good. It was good. So, thanks for manning the fort while I was gone. Well, you know, we try. We um, It's funny talking about driving in England. I hadn't been back because I'd lived in Australia for like seven years before I went home. And I pulled out of the parking lot of a Hertz at Heathrow Airport and was on the wrong side of the road on a dual carriageway. Dual carriageway in England means there's a big central reservation between the two sides of the road. Interstate. <laughs> the interstate freeway. And I'm like, what? Hooligans or vandals, as Americans call them. They've knocked all the signs the wrong way around. They're like, someone's gone and bashed them all. And then I saw sirens and this police car stopped me and was like, uh, I went in your window and I spoke and he was really surprised to hear a British accent. <laughs> I was like, okay, this got interesting. Why are you driving on the wrong side of the road? And I was like, oh, that's why the signs are not the wrong way around. It's me that's the wrong way around. <laughs> Luckily, it was 2 a.m. in the morning. And he let me off and turned me around. Oh. And you weren't drunk, right? <laughs> just probably no, what he I thought. Was just straight off a plane. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, awesome, awesome. So, yeah, it happens to the best of us, Paul. Yes, indeed. Well, okay. So, hey, you know what you need? You need a co-pilot when you're driving in England. So, oh, look at that. <laughs> That's right. And so, um, you find, you've shared with me a link on how to prepare for co-pilot in M365. Yeah, so if you haven't worked out, there's a lot of um, focus from Microsoft on Copilot right now. Um, obviously, we had the online events focus on this in March and then build event in May. Talked about the developer story around Copilot. And um, there's a new community, the Microsoft 365 Copilot community, which is on the techcommunity.microsoft.com. And the first post has come out there by Yana. And it's about how to prepare for Microsoft 365 Copilot kind of focusing on the IT admin within your tenant, talks about what licensing you need as a baseline and um, technical requirements and things you should have turned on and off. But um, it's a good place just to bookmark and follow because all of the co-pilot kind of end user admin posts will be posted in that community from here on out. Um, and then obviously if you carry on following the Microsoft 365 developer blog, uh, that's where you'll get all the co-pilot developer extensibility blogs um, kind of complementing that. Even though you may think, oh, yeah, okay, I'll think about it later. I bet your staff or your colleagues are already using either Copilot or ChatGPT or some AI, so you might as well get on board now. It's happy. Right, right. kind of an eye-opening experience in, in when I was talking to folks over in Germany as well uh, at, at the conference. A lot of people are already using it, whether it's official or not. Yeah, I mean, we, I've got an open AI premium sub myself, and many conversations have gone in there. And 
you know, obviously you've got to be careful what you put in there, but um, in the premium skew, you know, it's not training the LR, the or grounding the LMM anymore. And you can delete those conversations and it deletes it from everywhere. Um, and so it's super useful to be able to kind of ideate in that, depending on what you're doing. And then in addition to that community, which is more kind of, as I say, admin and end user, if you're listening and you are a software company and you're building products on Microsoft 365 as an ecosystem, uh, the tap, as I've mentioned before in the past, is now broader than just the graph. So the technology adoption program. And we have a new shiny landing page at aka.ms slash m365devtap, T-A-P. And it gives you all the criteria of joining that technology adoption program, like Paul's in, with that in 365 And um, we do monthly calls under NDA. We're going to be talking a lot about Copilot extensibility in the next few months. So if you're interested in that and you're not in the tap already, I'd highly encourage you to sign up. And my admins got quite the backlog right now of people joining. But um, (laughs) yeah, there's going to be a ton of content in there. And it will be recorded if you don't get in before those meetings start happening. Um, But yeah, it's going to be lots of useful conversation and be able to keep up under NDA before we make public announcements of things like Ignite in November in the future. I hope I'm not putting undue work on, on you folks, but the, the the one of the benefits, of course, is at some point there's a person I know I've seen on the tap that I can send a message to and say, hey, I'm stuck. And in my experience, it was Fabian and routed me to whoever I needed to talk to and got unblocked. So so if you're not part of the tap, the, there's a, it's not just the meetings and the recordings, but it's the ability to chat and ask questions. So sign up. Yeah, and it's, and it's how we do selection of things like early adoption programs. So, you know, right now we're actively looking which 25 ISVs are we going to go pick to be early adopters that we'll announce at Ignite. Um, and, and so those kind of things is, is what we're focusing on right now. Yeah. So the other parts of the, of the graph team, if you will, have the new graph APIs for managing Microsoft Teams webinars which I'm sure has, is not a surprise, right? Because uh, we've had meeting type APIs as well. So this is a, a beta one. This is a relatively new announcement, came out just the week we're recording. Um, but just as you can have a Teams app work in a meeting before, during, and after, this has before and after events on uh, on the graph for webinars. So if you're doing all kinds of, kind of ties in with a co-pilot as well, probably if you need to, to try to do some stuff out of, or have an idea of what to do with the webinar. So those APIs are in preview now. Yeah, there's so many examples. I mean, obviously, unfortunately during the pandemic, there was a lot more webinar demand than there was in-person events for a variety of different ways of getting people together. And um, there's a really cool virtual event playbook they've put together, you know, how to use Teams as part of that if you you know if you if you're running it and these APIs essentially automate it to make it even easier than manually having to configure those things in in the Teams UI. So I'm really glad that we've we kind of as we're releasing things in the user experience, we're thinking about what that looks like in the API and then releasing those. So if you are doing anything with virtual events right now and you want to automate it, those APIs are going to be your best friend. All right. The next link I want to catch up on is. Uh, uh, Identity, everyone, everyone's favorite topic. So um, there's a, an mcell.net version 4.54, but it's noteworthy because uh, there is now a managed identity application builder. And so let me just go a little deeper. Right previously, if I wanted to get a token in my code, I could create a confidential client application builder or a public client application builder. And then on that 
say, acquire a token for me, and it would just go do that. Well, now, I, if I know that my code's running where managed identity is available, I can just have a managed identity application builder, and then it, it kind of short circuits the whole lookup bit of what has to happen if it's a confidential client and it happens to be you know working in the cloud. This is much more direct, much easier to understand. And obviously, uh, the um, the exception types that you'll get back are, are less less things to have to worry about, right? Because I know a managed identity is not going to get a user <laughs> user experience required exception, so it's it's good to go. So it's nice to see this moving along. So again, if you're not using MCL or specifically MCL.net, go get it, get off it, and go do it. It is so much easier than uh, rolling your own. Yeah, it's impressive that we keep on improving those MCL libraries. I remember years and years and years ago, we were moving people off Adol to this and and people originally didn't see the value and now like it's so rich that you know it's just really revolutionized the way people are doing identity now in all those different apps on different platforms that's so awesome to see these additions here and manage identity and lastly i want to do a shout out to andrew connell's blog post andrew doesn't do his uh podcast anymore but he did a developer news from build post which i think it's good for folks to get the outside view of what's going on, right? So this is Andrew's third-party view of the Microsoft 365 developer news from Build, which covers a lot of things that we've talked about, Copilot and Teams Toolkit and so on. But like I guess I always try to encourage folks to, to you know, look at things from multiple angles. So it's certainly worth uh, getting that. So thanks to AC for putting that all together and uh, pointing out a couple of clickworthy things as well. So thanks, AC, for doing that. Yeah, it's cool. I miss this podcast. Why well, him and CJ's podcast? Oh, yeah, that other guy, right? Yeah. <laughs> He's doing one with Julie, though, isn't he, who we've got as a guest on today? Well, they don't do it quite as regularly. And, and uh, um, yes, but uh, Julie Turner is our guest. Uh, Julie was also in uh, uh, Dusseldorf at the conference. So uh, her topic intrigued me. And so I asked her to come on and share bits about that. And so... Uh, Wonderful to have uh, a different JT on the on the podcast <laughs> this show talking about developer-y things. So thanks to Julie for coming on and uh, great to catch up, buddy. And uh, now we just have to find a place where you and I are in the same place at the same time and we'll be all set. Right. It'll eventually happen. I'm delighted to have on the podcast this week, Julie Turner. Hey, Julie, how are you? Hey, Paul, how are you? I'm doing terrific. Although uh, Andrew Connell was wondering if you're the new JT. So since he didn't show up th this week, <laughs> we can just go with that plan, right? Well, I'm the old JT since I'm the older no, JT. that can't but, be true. Yeah. But anyway, you know. so. Oh, but it is. <laughs> so for, for the, a few folks who, who only know of a single JT, can you uh, tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, so my name is Julie Turner. I am a self-titled partner and CTO with Simpraxis Consulting. We're a very small five-person global company. We can say global now because one of our uh, one of our members lives in Iceland. Uh, global consulting company that does Microsoft 365 implementations for our clients, which you know runs the gamut of many things, but probably predominantly in the SharePoint teams and adjacent technologies. I primarily work in the extensibility piece of that. And uh, yeah, and so I'm a Microsoft MVP. I'm also on the um, patterns and practices team, also the Microsoft 365 community team, I guess is what it's more called. 
am the open source maintainer of the PM or co-maintainer, excuse me, of the PMPJS library, and as well another project which we're sort of gonna talk about today called H2O with uh, Stefan Bauer. So yeah, that's all about me. Yes, great, and, and thanks for all the community efforts. And and just to give some background to the listeners, so you and I were both in Dusseldorf. Uh, it's probably been a month or so now. Yeah. And and as I was browsing through the list of sessions, you had a session titled "Atomic React Component Design and SPFX," and I thought, hey, that's great, but it conflicted with one of my talks, so I couldn't attend. <laughs> and so <laughs> I know we were at the same time. As usually <laughs> happens when on the podcast, Paul has a topic on. To learn more about so i invite the expert in and i ask you questions and i hope the rest of the folks can learn from paul's stupid questions so oh that's awesome what do you mean by atomic react component design in spfx yeah so um essentially what we mean or what we're talking about is a sort of an actual an old uh idea uh, that was first introduced by a gentleman named Brad Frost, who's sort of very, very well known out in the inter, you know, web, commercial website design world uh, for his design expertise. And he sort of developed this idea uh, called atomic design, which is the idea that you break up your layouts, your design for your web pages into five distinct levels. And so uh, as it sort of the name sort of implies, you start with atoms, which are the smallest building blocks of your website, and you can kind of allude to the smallest building blocks of life, right? And so then atoms, each of those atoms, and normally an atom would be something like an HTML element, like a button, or uh, just a div, or a label, or an article, or whatever it might be. It's going to be your smallest building blocks of your web page. And then you'll combine those atoms together into various patterns. And those are then known as molecules. So like a common molecule that you might, you know, be able to mentally visualize is like a search box, right? So if you have a search box on your website, you're going to have a label because you want to say, you know, enter your search or search in your label. And then you're probably going to have an input box because you want the user to be able to type in their search query. And then you need a button to, for the user to be able to click on to say go. You know, not necessarily do you need all of those things. You could say go on enter of the input box or whatever, but the general idea is that you would combine these elements together and that that combination would kind of be um, known as a molecule. And then, so the next step up from that is an organism where you start combining atoms and molecules together in different patterns to sort of create a, a more complex organism. And so an idea for that might be like the header of, of a web page. So you might have an image, you might have some nav, and you might have that search box all in one area. And that container is that organism so that we know how how that's going to be laid out and what's the what's the styling there. And so then you can go up from there to templates. So the idea is that you would take those organisms and combine them together and you'd have a template for what a page would look like. And then an implementation of that template might be a page. So that was the atomic design idea that Brad Frost introduced. And he created a a solution called Pattern Labs. And um, you've heard me just reference Stefan Bauer. Stefan Bauer then took that Pattern Labs idea and sort of adopted it for uh, Microsoft 365 design framework. That's sort of the atomic design idea. 
And before I forget, if you want more, Stefan has been on the podcast a few times, so be sure yeah. to find his his discussions if you need to as well. And so having heard all of that, I think the next thing that, well, the, 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 the point that pops into my mind is if I have these different levels of things, how do I know what to what to bundle into an organism and what do I put into a nucleus? And so the first question is, does it matter what these levels mean? Is there a finite list or do I just wing it? No, no, it doesn't matter. It's it's not a set of rules. It's more of a set of guidelines. I think that's the better way to think about it. And the, the bigger idea here is that you're trying to think of a pattern of reuse. So it's the same thing that we might do with our code, right? We can build a, you know, a main function and we can write every bit of code in all the loops and all the whatever's in our main function and, and call it a day. Or we might think to ourselves, hey, this little bit of code I'm writing, I've had to write that five different times over and over again because I need to reuse it. And so the idea here is we're just making UX components reusable. And so that's why we break them down and we use this sort of idea of this uh, atomic design framework simply to say, or, uh, you know, design methodology simply to say, hey, what are the building blocks and how can we reuse them so that we can say that, like, this is a button and this is what it looks like. And everywhere we use a button, that's what the button looks like. And so that we're not redoing buttons over and over again every time we need a button in one of our components. So even if we're functionalizing our code, if there's even a sub bit of that code that we're going to reuse, we might put that in another function. And so that's the same idea with this atomic design thing. It's just that we're, um, we're talking about UX elements versus actual code elements. Does that make more sense? It does. And now this, there's probably no right or wrong answer to this question either. But let's say, for example, I've combined a bunch of things into an organism or a nucleus. doesn't matter, but there's a bunch of, there's a couple of things combined together. Yeah. And now the second time I'm doing it, I have a slightly different, it's mostly the same, but a little bit different. So do you pass in props and do conditional rendering? Do you make a separate one with a similar but different name? Do you something else? Sometimes. So sometimes both. Sometimes. Yeah. Sometimes It's gonna as any as any good consultant will will tell you. Paul, it depends. <laughs> I didn't think of that. <laughs> I like to try, and I mean, you could kind of, you can kind of see this if you look at the React component library. That's the companion for um, H2O Core. I'd like to try to make my components as configurable as possible where it makes sense. I think when you're trying to write like crazy sort of conditional logic for what you're going to render when then you probably have too complex of a component and you either need to break that component down into smaller pieces and or you need to have a second implementation because they're just not the same, you know, close enough to being the same. I tend to find though that if I really think of each little bit of functionality as its own component and that it has a set of props and that I really am only using the state of the React component to allow me to interact with that particular chunk of functionality. So I only use state when I really need something like, 
let's say I made a drop down box, you know, like a, a drop down combo box type of thing. Um, and I need to use the state to know like what item you're currently scrolling on. Like if you're moving down the, the selection list, that's functionality around that drop down box functioning. But as far as like what value is selected or what events happen when you click on something or select something or whatever, where it needs to talk to its parent components, I try to do all of that work in the props and, and just have a complete separation of concerns with far as my business logic and my UX logic, right? And separating those uh, completely apart. So in general, I try to make the components as simple as possible, but as configurable as possible. Okay, now there's a couple of terms that you've gone into is in this description, and I want to pick apart a little bit. So, well, you mentioned H2O, and and obviously that's what I think is similar to something like Fluent UI. So, why would I care? Right, there's a button there. So, I, if I'm not styling a button, I'm just going to reuse this one that Microsoft gives me or the community gives me. How, where does where does your atomic design fit into that scenario or, or where do those fit into your design? Essentially, it's like a partnership, right? So what H2O, the, the open source project does for you, and even Fluent UI to a certain extent does for you, is that it it sort of gives you helper atoms, right? Or helper uh, molecules. It's building some of those pieces for you so you don't have to build them by yourself every single time. But essentially then you're gonna take those components from a third party library, either Fluent UI, Fabric, you know, React, what it, whichever flavor of thing you're on, depending on what version of thing you're on, or, or the H2O React components. And you're gonna essentially say, okay, these are some of the atoms already styled and ready to go for me that are very configurable and, and very reusable. And so now I'm just going to combine those with my own UI and put them together. I like to think of them as Lego blocks, right? I got a Lego kit and yeah, it comes with instructions and I can build that thing or I can take my Lego parts and I can build my own thing depending on what, you know, my imagination tells me I need or my, in this case, my customer needs for to, to solve their business problem. So they're just components that were they're getting giving you a helping hand by sort of build pre-building them for you but they're fit into the framework yeah and you know the, you mentioned that you know they're styled a certain way and now that you say that it, it occurs to me i use them because i don't want to have to write css to look like teams or the dashboard or right? neither do i paul so, uh, <laughs> it's thinking out loud the the atoms and molecules that those libraries give me do the look and feel but the actual logic and the pieces that I need is more of the organism that I'm tending to build. Is it exactly right? so excellent? See, look at that. Right, right. You're combining them together, and maybe you have to write some container CSS, but it's significantly simpler than trying to write some of the CSS and accessibility CSS and all of that work that you have to do to build a good atomic component, right? Like instead of you having to know all of that grid layouts and flex boxes and and <laughs> CSS variables and the list goes on and on. I only on. know flex exists when it shows up in the lint errors. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that I did it wrong. Yeah, exactly. Like all of those things. I mean, it, it, I kind of like joke with people. I'm like, you know, I have Stefan on speed dial and I anytime I have a styling issue, I'm just like, I ain't dealing with this. I'm throwing it over the wall to him. 
Um, and that's great and everything, but this is sort of like everybody else gets to like take advantage of that expert knowledge, right? Like somebody that already built the HTML and CSS made it look like the uh, fabric UI that, you know, definition language. And then we're just taking advantage of all that greatness and, and making it easy for ourselves to build. So um, one of the other things that I kind of do like, and this is something that Fluent UI gives you as well, but um, one of the things that I'm not particularly fond of with the PMP React components, which are sort of data bound versions of the Fluent UI components is that they are data bound. That's not something that I prefer. That's just my style. I like to, again, keep my business logic separate. And so that's not my preference. And so this is another aspect of this where I have these very flexible, very um, configurable components that aren't data bound and that allow me to build beautiful solutions for you know the Microsoft 365 ecosystem. I want to talk about data bound because the whole point of many of these controls is to enter data. So if it's not data bound, what do you mean? It, what I mean by that is I like to do my data binding in a service layer, a business layer. So instead of uh, having a click event that then like takes the value of the input box and manipulates it and makes a REST call to the graph or SharePoint REST endpoints or whatever directly in the component. I like to design my uh, user experiences so that it works with the data, but it's talking to a central service class that maintains my state and handles all of the conversations with the REST endpoints that are in the Microsoft 365 ecosystem. Okay. And so here's, so for listeners, there's an example that I came across recently. We typically, I, I don't like, I don't like making calls from TypeScript to SharePoint or Graph because then my customer has to remember to go to the API access screen and click the approve button. And no one ever remembers to do that. So I try not to do that. And a developer plopped the pick, the site picker control on there. And it calls SharePoint and it just works. And so I believe that's kind of what you're saying. They're right. making calls directly. Yeah. So, the, and I guess this is, that's a Julie preference or do you have, is that a, a bad idea? I think clarifying that is helpful. You know, everybody has their own way of doing things. And I'm not going to sit here and like preach, like I'm the only one who knows how to do anything, right? That's just not my a viewpoint and not my way. You know, it's just my preferred way. I I prefer to keep the separation. I think I think I've heard people come to me and say, "Oh, well, you you know, and this is one of the big arguments we have about React hooks." So, you know, people are like, "Oh, we love React hooks. It gets rid of all these React problems." And I'm like, "I don't have React problems." <laughs> and I think the reason I don't have React component problems is because I don't actually do these complicated asynchronous operations within my components. And because I don't do that, I don't end up having the weight inside of React trying to maintain state at all, a bunch of different levels in, in different components interacting with each other because I centralize that logic elsewhere. And so it's just my preference. I feel like it makes my code easier to read. It makes things simpler. Um, and it certainly reduces the number of bugs that I have in my code because of that separation of concerns. Yeah, so so um, Paul, being a good student, uh, this, this atomic design that you're referring to, you're also, it's not just 
HTML component-y things, that's really how you're building a whole solution that it sounds like, right? Because you have, you're building pieces together, right? Yep, exactly. Obviously, we talked about HTML elements and the React components on like that, but I, and that you touched a little bit about React hooks or not hooks or whatever. So, but it seems to me that this this design language, if you will, is, isn't really just about how it looks, right? So, are behaviors uh, included in what you're thinking? Some not well. I guess sort of. It's mostly about look and feel. It's also, I mean, so. If we go and look at the specification for a, a design framework like Microsoft, you know, Microsoft's Fluent UI, they're going to decide, you know, like what the font sizes should be and what the color palette should be and what the elevation should be on things. I mean, there's a lot of nitty gritty design that I don't even know some of the definitions of that are included in that sort of the design framework itself. And so the H2O React components are trying to stay as pure to the HTML elements as they can. So one of the things that I like to try to do is like, let's say you want to have, you know, a document card and you want that to be drag and droppable. And so if I provide you with an H2O uh, component for a card, I want to be able to allow you to add any HTML attributes to the container di cards div that you would be able to do if you had direct access to the internals. I don't want to make black boxes. And so in general, like, let's say you wanted to add drag and drop. That's like really hard to do with the Fluent UI components, like the React components, because there's no way to extend the internal workings of the elements as easily as by directly referencing the actual, you know, specification attributes of like the root element of that component. So um, it's definitely one of the things that I think is, um, is important about the, so the ability to sort of design how that element is working is just as pure as the HTML language itself. I don't try to specify anything outside of that. Does that make sort of sense as far as like the interactivity of them? Yeah, 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 right. Yeah. And I guess part of this kind of depends. Well, so let me rephrase this as a question. So these component designs and you say SPFX, but nowadays SPFX has many different hosts. So do you find making different decisions then depending on I'm going to be in a web part or I'm going to be in an ACE or I'm going to be full screen in a Teams tab? As far as the it, the individual atoms go or? The, the, well, in general, yeah. So if I'm looking at this the, this component, you know, the atomic design principles, for lack of a better term, right? Do, do you find yeah. that I need to, to zig and zag depending on the host or, or, or what, what do I need to worry about? I don't, not at the root. I mean, in my opinion, HTML elements should work the same no matter what host you're in. Like if a calendar item should look like a calendar item should look like a calendar, you know, a date picker should look like a date picker should look like a date picker. And I mean, I think that's one of the tenements of the web. And if we're going to say, oh, because you're in teams, we should make the date picker behave differently. I think that's confusing for the user. So I don't tend to do that. What I do tend to see though is if I have something that I'm going to host in SharePoint, i.e. a SharePoint page, and I'm going to host it in Teams, and I'm going to host it on office.com or outlook.com, I'm going to want it to look 
to blend into where it is, right? So that's definitely one of the things that we want to do is make it look and feel like it belongs where it's going. Now, for the most part, I think Stefan has handled that. And so the way we handle that is by passing in some of that theme information that you can get from those platforms. So when you host in any of these platforms, one of the things available to you is the theme information. And so that theme information are translates into CSS variables, which are design tokens in the root of any of these languages. And so essentially when you take the same source code and you run it in SharePoint, and then you run the same solution in Teams, everything is going to look like it belongs there because it's going to pick up the design nuances for that rendered visualization. Does that make sense? It, it, it does. And this may be a, a question for, for some others, but do the, how many of these frameworks, AKA Fluent or H2O or whatever, do you, how many of these do you know, do they automatically give me that host styling information or is that generally work that you'll have to do as a developer to figure that out and pass it into these frameworks? You, so H2O has some helper functions to make that super simple. SharePoint Framework and Teams both sort of provide it as a property. And so you can just pass it into the helper functions for H2O. For the Fluent UI, it's my understanding, but I will say I haven't used it in a long time, so I wouldn't necessarily quote me without validating. But my understanding is that those libraries don't work in both both places and that you need to use a different uh, implementation of the React components if you're in Teams versus when you're in SharePoint versus when you're in the other places. Um, I don't know if that's still true. It was definitely true before. I don't know if it's still true today because I sort of walked, full disclosure, sort of walked away when I got <laughs> frustrated with how many different you know, implementations and variations there were and, and especially the versioning issues, right? Like every time the major, a version dropped, it was like a massive rewrite. And then, you know, just not being able to make the components bend to my will uh, in the way that I needed them to, I, I, that's sort of when I kind of like, we need a different answer for this. And that's sort of how H2O was born, so. Uh, that's great background. Um, and plus, I with the new fancy looking SharePoint that they showed in Las Vegas so last month, it's probably going to change again going forward. So definitely something to keep an eye on, right? That's right. Okay. So having said all that, that's great. So pivot a little bit now. You At the top, you told us how these all these wonderful community things you're doing. Anything interesting, fun, exciting on the way or recently released or... Yeah, so for H2O, we did just release version 2.0. So one of the major update for that was that there was um, a SharePoint framework specifically changed the uh, version of the SAS uh, library that they were using. Um, so it was, uh, Stefan knows this a little bit better than I do, but we were using something, the old version was LibSAS and now they're using SAS Dart and it's like a Dart 2.0 version. And so some of the uh, ways that we would import SAS files and do our references changed a little bit. And some of the variable ways we do calculations in SAS and some of that stuff changed. So there was, a, we did do a major release, a major version release of 2.0. What really changed is the underlying uh, H uh, CSS and, and not really any of the HTML and the React components had very little changes for that uh, version upgrade. Um, so that sort of 
happened. Um, at this point, we're just sort of slowly but surely adding new things that we come up with. As Stefan and I do work for clients and we come up with new ideas of things that we can implement, we're implementing them. Um, so like one of the newest that we have to sort of do a little bit more work on because it's sort of a partnership uh, thing is that we're building templates that you that we can you can use the handlebars templates in uh, the PMP search components, but use H2O styling in them. So you can essentially copy and paste the um, CSS, HTML and CSS out of H2O core and paste it right into a handlebars template in the PNP search components and create your own renderings that way. So there, it just gives one more flavor of thing that you can build, um, which is kind of fun and, and neat. So that's something we're working on. Uh, and then just higher order components uh, with the drop of SharePoint framework uh, ability to make custom forms in the list item uh, or list or library items you can have your own form now for uh, display <laughs> like we couldn't have it in classic forever no but we yeah. finally got the ability to do it in uh, modern yeah amen finally right um and so you know that form real you have to build the form yourself right and so um i said to stefan it would be great if we built a container for people so that they'd have a really fast and easy way to start so we'd have a react component uh, in H2O that is that framework. So it defines like the width of the page and what the height is and what rows look like and whatever so that people can just drop their uh, components in simply and easily. So things like that we're working on. As far as my other open source stuff, um, I am working on the team, uh, Patrick Rogers, Bo Cameron and myself are working on a new version, version four of PMPJS. So that is coming uh, soon, we're we're doing the early work on that. So busy, busy. So we'll put a pin in that one and, and talk about it when it when it's out. Because uh, obviously, if it's a new major version, it's probably something new in there. So it'd be great to see. So thanks so much for sharing all this with us. And obviously, we'll put some links to H two O and these uh, community things in in the show notes. But before people can read them, if they have questions or comments, so it's a good way to reach out to you and or other maintainers of your projects. Yeah, so you can find me, uh, Julian Turner on LinkedIn. Um, so that's an easy way to like get in touch with me. I don't spend a ton of time on Twitter anymore, uh, but you can always DM me and I'll get an email notification if you're looking for that. And then also my blog is julieturner.net and I have been being a little more active there. So that's another good place to find me. Excellent. And, and I assume there are GitHub issues for the other uh, projects, right? Yes. Yeah, so, okay, excellent. Yeah, both. H2O and um, PMPJS have issues lists. So if you have issues or thoughts or ideas or enhancement um, things that you are looking for, especially for H2O, well, the more interactivity we get there, you know, we're just sort of coming up with our own ideas and implementing them. If you have things that are interesting to you, and by you, I mean, surely you, Paul Schaefline, or <laughs> anyone else in the community has ideas of things they'd like to see, submitting those ideas always gives us new, you know, it's always fun, something new I can challenge Stefan with. So, yeah. So always good. Well, thanks so much. And then hope, hopefully next time we were at different time slots, we'll get to, we'll get to catch up. Yeah, that would be great. Awesome talking to you. Thanks for listening to the Microsoft 365 Developer Podcast. Please follow us on Twitter at M365DevPodcast and check out our show notes at www.m365devpodcast.com. 
to help us spread the word, we'd really appreciate it if you could retweet our episode tweets and give us a review on iTunes. That's all, folks. 